Earlier, Andrew mentioned that we're a large church, and of course that's relative. Uh, some of you may have come from churches much larger, um, as well as other sizes, but um, that we are a family. And if you really want to get a good sense of that, let me encourage you um, to make the evening gathering part of your regular Lord's Day uh, practice. It's early enough, you can still get the kids to bed uh, on time, but it does, we call it an evening gathering because it's a different kind of service than what we have uh, in the morning. Uh, we have time for people to give testimony, we're going to pray corporately. Uh, we do not just for kids, object lesson that uh, is really an introduction to whatever we're teaching uh, in the evening. Uh, tonight, there's just so much going on, um, tremendous opportunities for our uh, connecting with our community with the gospel, uh, both through Harvest Happening that's going to happen later in the fall, and then, then also an opportunity that's come for us to uh, have release time with one of the local public schools. And um, we're really grateful for this uh, opportunity that uh, gives us a chance to really connect again for the sake of the gospel uh, with those um, public school students whose parents want them to actually have some Bible in their lives. And we're going to be providing that, and we're just so grateful. David Dursch will be telling us about that. On top of that, uh, we'll be ordaining Ben Selinsky. He's going to be actually, um, in the coming uh, weeks and months, be... Uh, having an actual position in a, one of a local church. Um, so we'll be ordaining him. And then at the end of the service, uh, we're going to be uh, praying over, saying goodbye to the Overstreets, uh, whom God has opened up an opportunity uh, for John to take a pastorate um, in a nearby town as well. So just so much going on. And I think, you know, if you miss that, you really are missing a good part of what we're about as a church family. Uh, we want to know one another. So if you would like to reduce it from being um, like one person lost in a crowd to feeling connected to what's going on uh, tonight uh, is your opportunity to start building that. We all get used to certain things, and certainly if you're a regular part of a uh, Sunday morning crowd at any church uh, in America, we're so used to talking about Jesus that I think it's easy for us to forget just how radical his teaching sounded to those who heard him for the first time. I mean, it, it was almost like dropping a bomb in the middle of the room uh, because he is so unlike uh, anyone else that we've ever encountered. And before we actually get to our text um, this morning, I thought it would be really important for us just to remind ourselves of the kinds of things that Jesus has said and done up to this point in John's gospel. And this will just be what John talks about um, that gives us some kind of insight into how uh, amazing Jesus is and, and what a stir he has caused. So I'm not going to put the references and all up on the screen. I want you just to, to listen and let like the avalanche of what he has said uh, grip you. When he met Nathaniel, he tells him, you know, I saw you under the fig tree before he was even in the region. And, and Nathaniel's blown away. He believes that he's the promised Messiah. And Jesus says, 
Uh, you're going to see greater things than these. You will see heaven opened and the angel of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, referring to himself. He says to the Jews in John chapter 2, um, they ask, you know, what sign, what miracle will you do um, to give you the authority to cleanse the temple the way that you're doing? He says, destroy this temple, referring to his body, in three days, in three days I will raise it up. He says in John 3 to Nicodemus, no one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the servant of the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he both gives his, his high um, where he came from, his heavenly source, and at the same time, his earthly mission of dying on the cross. He will go on to say, whoever believes in him, referring to the Son of Man, the Son of God, Jesus, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We're all sinners by birth and by choice. We stand under God's condemnation, but he says, if you believe in him, you won't be condemned which tells you he is, he is claiming that he can be your mediator. He, he can come between you and God and actually get you in rather you're, than you're being destroyed by God. He says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. I mean, can you imagine serving water to somebody in your kitchen and saying something like that? They'd be falling off their chair or running for the door. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ, the anointed one. This is the promised Messiah throughout all the Old Testament. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's looking into the eyes of the one who's fulfilling the messianic promises. And then when we reach chapter 5, he just blows the top off with an extended uh, section as he teaches even those who don't believe in him stunning things. For the Father loves the Son and has shown him all things that he himself is doing. Greater works than these, he's already done miracles, will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will, whoever he wants to. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him an authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man, referring to what Daniel prophesied, the one who would judge at the end of the age. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Nobody talks this way. He says to those who were Bible scholars but didn't believe in Him, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. He said, if you believed Moses, what he wrote in the Pentateuch, you would believe me 
for he, Moses, wrote of me, Jesus. He said, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they answered him, the crowd there, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the will of my Father, he goes on to say, and that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then he says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. He uses graphic language to say, just as you depend on food to sustain your life, you've got to depend on me to give you life. And then they're still balking at all this and says, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. He will continue to make just astonishing claims like, I'm the resurrection and the life, and then he'll proceed to raise a guy from the dead. In other words, Jesus is like no other human being who ever walked the earth. This is why C.S. Lewis says famously in his little book, Mere Christianity, if you don't have it, you ought to get it. This is just a bad paraphrase of what he says. A man who says the kinds of things Jesus said is either a madman on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg or the devil himself, or he's Lord and God. Those are the only choices left to you. It's patronizing nonsense, Lewis says, to call him just a good man or just a prophet. See, Jesus backed his bold claims with miraculous and bold deeds recorded by eyewitnesses. He turned water to wine at the wedding feast of Canaan. He drove out those selling in the temple because they had made his father's house a house of trade, an emporium. He healed the dying son of an official in Capernaum and did so from a distance with nothing but the words, go, your son will live. He healed the man at the pool of Bethesda who'd been paralyzed for 38 years with the words, get up, take up your bed, and walk. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children with one boy's lunch And when they had all had their fill, they took up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. He walked on water, instantly calmed a violent storm on the Sea of Galilee, and brought the boat immediately to shore from miles out at sea. It's very clear that Jesus does not fit in the normal categories in which we place people. His words and his deeds are beyond the bounds. Now, that poses a problem for us. Whenever we encounter something that doesn't fit what we've known previously, we're not sure what to do with it. We've got our filing system, and this isn't fitting into our files. If something seems too good to be true, we've learned by hard experience that it's probably not true. Life has a way of making cynics of us all. So, we can identify 
with Pilate when he quips during his interrogation of Jesus at his trial, what is truth? He says that in response to something Jesus said, for this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? He was to the age where he wasn't really worried about truth anymore. He'd been disappointed too many times. Is there really such a thing? Or is it all up for grabs? What is truth? Is Jesus who he says he is? And how can we know for sure? You know, there's lots of information, true and false, floating around in the world, and particularly in the information age. We can access it with the, the touch of a button. But, but much of the time, what's true or what's not, what's fake news and what's real news, may not really affect us individually. It might be interesting, it might be entertaining, but who cares whether it's true or not. But when someone claims to be the judge of all the earth, when he says he's the one who can deliver you from your sin and from the wrath of God that your sin deserves, when he says that reliance on him will give you life eternal and that he will actually raise your dead body from the grave at the end of the age, that matters. If he's telling the truth, turning away from him is fatal. If he's lying, trusting him is foolish at best. So if you are searching for the truth, in particular regarding Jesus, how can you really know? And Jesus is going to answer that question for us in our text this morning. We're in John chapter 7. We're dropping in to his teaching beginning in verse 14. We're going to read 14 through 24 of John 7. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and went all the way back to Abraham, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." So how can we know the truth? If we're searching for the truth, how do we know? Three things Christ teaches us in this passage. First, 
It calls for submission. Submission. Christ displays it, and he calls for it. Second, there must be humility. And then finally, there must be honesty, verses 19 to 24. Let's develop these ideas. Uh, may not be totally clear to you right now, but hopefully will be once we work through them. So first thing Jesus said, if you really want to know the truth, you've got to desire to do the will of God. You've got to have submitted heart, submission. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So what, what are they saying here? Well, Jesus has not been educated by the respected rabbinic schools, the schools for training rabbis. He didn't have the right kind of credentials, and despite that, his teaching is extraordinary and insightful and powerful and effective. So how can that possibly be? It was a cause for wonder, but some just discounted him altogether because he wasn't trained in the approved schools. People, many people are still that way today. They can't imagine someone could speak truth that was not trained in the institutions they approve of. So they ignore them or demonize them. They don't even begin to listen to see if what they say is right and true. They, they don't really test the information that does come from their approved sources because they just assume that it's true. We are the good guys. They're the bad guys. So whatever we say must be good. Whatever they say must be bad. They just believe what they're taught because it has the right stamp on it. That is a foolish way to live. And it's not the way that you actually find the truth. Jesus' authority did not rest on human credentials. The truth he spoke came from God. And those truly submitted to God would recognize it as such. It was almost more a matter of the heart than of the head, whether or not it would resonate as true. Jesus says in verse 16, he answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. What Jesus taught was from God the Father. Even though he's God the Son, he is displaying submission to the Word of God and to the will of God. Everything he says comes from God. Everything he does are works given to him by God. And, and it's important for us to recognize that, that those who actually follow Jesus, any reliable preacher or teacher that follows Jesus must do the same. We must model and we must teach submission to the text of the Word of God. Our job is not to use the Word of God for our own purposes, not to cram it into our own systems, not to hijack it for our own benefits, but instead to stand under the Word of God in submission to it. What does God actually say? Teach that. Preach that. Don't go off course from that. 
Listen, if you're, if you're listening to teaching and preaching and you can't figure out where what the guy is saying is coming from, you can't see it in the text, that's not actually preaching. He might be giving you information, or it might be that you don't know where he's getting it from, but be very careful that, that there's, a, there's a connection between what you're hearing and what the text actually says. Because no human being has authority on his own to speak truth from God. It has to be like a messenger boy. A prophet, by definition, was one who heard from God and then spoke to people. If he didn't hear from God, his mouth should be shut. Now, we have the written word of God. But if if I am standing before God's people or before anyone, if I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and I say that I am teaching what God says is true, then there better be evidence for it in the text. And if there's not, I'm blowing smoke. A lot of times what we do is we, we just say, well, that sounds like it's right, so it must be. So I know this guy, I'm going to trust him. Very dangerous. In fact, one of the most dangerous things that preachers can do is to train their people to believe what they say divorced from the text. It leaves them wide open for a false teacher to come in, say something that sounds right, and then actually take them off course. If Jesus Christ himself appealed to the Scriptures, if Jesus Christ himself spoke words that come from the Father, then who are we to deliver as truth anything less? He, though his son, shows submission to God, and he says, if you really want to know the truth, you have to be submitted to God as well, because discerning truth from error is as much to do with your will as with your intellect, and often more so. That's the way we're wired. Just to to illustrate, it's easy for us to forget, and and I'm projecting that you're like me, okay? It's easy for me to forget what people have asked me to do if I didn't want to do it in the first place. Have you noticed that? Like, I can almost predict if I'm going to forget it, because I don't really want to do that, but yeah, okay, I want to be a nice guy, I'll say yes. Chances are I'm going to forget that. Okay? Well, it's the same when we're trying to learn something. If we're not, if we're not submitted to the will of God, then, then we're not really going to hear and take it to heart the way we should. If you're not really interested in bowing the knee to the directives of God and, and acting on the truth that He reveals to you, you will find it very difficult to even discover what the truth is. You can't find truth if your heart has already, is already disposed to refuse yielding to it. You know, the saying, a person convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. Some people love accumulating knowledge just for knowledge's sake, and sometimes it's Bible knowledge. But God's revelation of truth calls for reliance, putting the weight of your trust on it. It calls for change. It calls for action. It calls for obedience. If all you're doing is playing a mind game or, or you're in some intellectual scavenger hunt, forget it because God's not mocked. He's not going to engage in that kind of pointless child's play. People can be curious about 
truth from God and even the will of God, but not in order to do what he reveals. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, remember what he said? He didn't say, teach them whatever I've taught you. He said, teach them to observe, to obey whatever I've commanded you. It's not just about this kind of like facts. It's, a, it's about submission to the truth that Jesus has delivered. If we have that resistance, it shows that we want to stay in control of our lives. We, we might want to find out about God's will and then still have the option whether we're going to follow it or not. Well, why should God waste his breath telling you anything? You have the roles reversed. He's the king of the universe, not you. If your will is stubborn toward God, knowing truth from him tends only to harden your heart. Remember, in, in Romans 1, when it talks about this, this huge degenerating of, of the human race, it said, when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were they thankful, and that's when their foolish hearts are darkened. And that's what happens. If, if I'm not going to treat God as God, why should he talk to me? I don't really understand the nature of the truth that he's given. If your will is stubborn toward God, knowing truth toward him hardens your heart. It, it becomes a curse. It mounts up the evidence for the prosecution on the day that you're condemned eternally for your refusal to hear his voice. But if your heart is open to the Lord, if you desire him to reveal truth so that you can walk in it, so that it can be a light to your path, you'll be amazed at how much God shows you. We sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. Jeremiah 29, 13, God speaking to captives in Babylon and Jeremiah giving them instruction. Even there, he said, if you will seek me and you will, and you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. It really is a heart matter. If you want to know the truth, it's a heart matter. It's a matter of your submission to God. Jesus said to many religious people in his day, um, well did Isaiah prophesy of you. With your lips you honor God, but your heart is far from him. In vain you worship him because you teach as doctrines, you teach as truth the commandments of men. So falsehood is the stock and trade of those who refuse to submit to God. If you want to know the truth, one of the first things that has to be true about you is a submission to God and to His will. So let me ask you, what if, what if anything is interfering with your complete submission to God? Really important to identify what, what is it that's more important to you than, than, than submitting to the Lord? And if you do not trust God enough to submit to him, what makes you think you'll be able to receive what he reveals as truth? And that really leads us to the question of how are you responding to the truth you already have? I mean, there's a lot of things we don't know, but how are you responding to the truth that you do know? Are, are you submitted to that? If you're on a search for truth, submission is the first step. Second, and related to it, is humility. Jesus says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Of course, he's talking about himself, but he's also relating this to a general principle. Jesus is contrasting himself with many of the religious leaders of his day. Here he is, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, the Son of Man to judge all the earth, yet he, he is marked by humility. 
He humbled himself even to death. He is gentle and lowly of heart. He says this in his invitation to Matthew 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says this, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will be your safe place. Stop your frantic search everywhere else. Find in me what you're looking for. Take my yoke. A yoke is for, you know, oxen to plow together. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, there's, there's something that's sweet about knowing you're doing what, what fits reality. Knowing that you actually have the truth in a, in a world full of falsehood and confusing voices to know you actually have found truth. Remember what Jesus said to these religious leaders who refused to believe him earlier in John 5. He says, I do not receive glory from people. But I know you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name. You do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. You're like the big name follower, you know, who's the celebrity. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? It was the good old boy club. It was, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's all about getting to a better position in the pecking order. Pride stands in the way of knowing the truth, and pride characterizes those whom you cannot trust and dare not trust, even if they are in Christian leadership. The Apostle John said it this way in 3 John, I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. He's not yielding to the apostles of Jesus Christ who wrote the New Testament. He's not yielding to the Word of God. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Humility is the mark of true servants of God. Jesus is God in human flesh, but he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And when we share the gospel... And when we take the gospel yoke on us, we need to get ourselves out of the way. People need to see Jesus. Our attitudes, our words, our actions need to reflect the humility and compassion of Christ. They need, they need to show persons that are getting out of the way to turn attention to Jesus. Not chest beating about how much better they are than other people not fretting about how they're being treated, not promoting their causes. Instead, following the example of a John the Baptist, he must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. Look, we are all passing shadows in history. We're here and then we're gone. We're nobodies. 
What makes our life significant is our connection to Jesus Christ. So those who serve Jesus must guard their hearts from pride because our humanity is just naturally bent that way. And, and we know all the way from the Garden of Eden on that it does great damage. I mean, they wanted to be the ones that decide what's right and wrong. Satan fooled that Satan was full of pride, okay? And he says, look, you should be the one that decide, not God. Eat the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then you'll be like God. You'll be fulfilled. It was a fat lie. But it was a prideful kind of temptation. Even those who've served faithfully and have started off small in their own estimation can, by virtue of God-given success, veer off course. King Saul, for instance. When you were small in your sight, you were okay. But when you became big in your own es es estimation, then you disobeyed God. King Uzziah, a good king, he died of leprosy. Why did he die of leprosy? Because he got so high and mighty because of all his victories that he thought he could do the priestly office. And he, he actually encroached on their office and God struck him with leprosy. Striking that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up. Beware of those who make much of themselves. Preachers who have their picture plastered everywhere, who are always using the first person singular, who demand special perks and privileges, who give the bulk of their energy and time promoting their own causes, their own movements, their own churches, their own schools, their own selves who take the focus off of Jesus and his gospel to bask in the limelight, who act like the world won't survive without their ministry. It's a bad joke. The world will be fine without us. It's nothing but worldly carnality to behave that way, and it is a lie. We are dependent on God. God's not dependent on us. And, and the very way that we carry out ministry needs to reflect that. 1 Corinthians 3, 3 through 7, this is a problem in the church in Corinth. They were man followers, even, even, even with good men. And Paul was correcting it. He says, you are still in the flesh. For what, while there is jealousy and strife among you, which is what this kind of pride produces, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way, in a carnal way? One says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? You're being carnal. You're being fleshly. Who then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Servants through whom you believe. As the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. So neither is he who plants nor he who waters anything, but only God who gives the growth. We really have to guard our hearts from this, especially if things are going well for us. We have to guard our hearts from this as a church family, especially when things are going well for us. And we have to guard our hearts really at an individual level. When have you caught yourself behaving in pride rather than humility? You know, when your conscience hits you, when you've behaved that way, it'd be really good for you to immediately confess that before God and confess that to those who saw you behave that way. It's, it's just good to keep short accounts, to not let that pride get root, rooted. Why, and think about it. Why is pride such an obstacle to understanding and promoting the gospel truth? 
because the gospel is all about humbling. Jesus had to humble himself to save us. We have to humble ourselves to be saved. We have to admit what, what trouble we're in, what sinners we are, how desperately we need a Savior, or we're utterly lost. No prideful person will bow the knee that way. The gospel is all about humility. And, and what religious leaders are you aware of characterized by pride? Well, those are the very ones you need to be wary of. Let it, let it be a flag. Let it warn you. Be very, very careful about those who are self-promoting that are full of pride because it is not a mark of those who are conveying the truth. And Jesus himself makes that point. And then finally, honesty. And he spends a little more time on this, um, but we'll be able to sum it up pretty quickly. He says, has not Moses given you the law yet none of you keeps the law. Remember, Moses is their big champion, and that's the basis on which they're opposing Jesus. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body whole? Well, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Jesus is essentially saying to them, you need to get honest about what you actually believe and what's actually true or you're going to miss it altogether. He makes three major assertions here that cut to the truth of matters. First, for all their claims to be defending the law of Moses and their opposition to Jesus, they themselves know that they do not keep the law of Moses perfectly. No one can. They were pretending that they were better than they actually were. They needed a big dose of honesty, and that would create the appropriate humility. Legalism has to dumb down the requirements of God's law. Those that think that they're going to measure up by keeping the law, it has to dumb down God's law. It has to make man-made rules that people can actually keep, even lost people, without God's help. God's law, including the Mosaic law, called for devotion of heart. Think about the two great commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's Mosaic law, Deuteronomy 6. Well, who can honestly say that he loves God supremely above all else all the time? There hasn't been one human being but Jesus who could say so truthfully. The second great command, love your neighbor as yourself, is also from Mosaic Law, Leviticus. Who can honestly say that he or she always loves others that way? No one. The law, and this is its purpose, convicts us of sin and shows us how badly we need a Savior. But if you won't get honest about your sin before God, how can you ever be saved from your sin? There's nothing to be saved from. I'm basically a good person. That's the usual line. No, you're not. I'm not basically a good person. I'm basically not. I do some good things. I try. 
but I do not always love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I do not love my neighbor as myself all the time. I don't. I'm condemned by Mosaic law and by the words of Jesus himself. Second, Jesus demonstrates his full awareness of those who desired to kill him. It was well known in Jerusalem. Remember, we already read that people were afraid to speak openly about Jesus because they knew that the leaders were trying to find him to kill him. And yet, when Jesus talks openly about this conspiracy to murder him, the crowd accuses him of being demon-possessed, as if he's a man afraid of shadows. They were unwilling to admit how evil his opponents actually were. They had been conditioned to whitewash the wickedness of their leaders. The conspiracy needed to stay undercover to succeed. It needed to stay free from accountability. To talk about it openly was taboo. Third, Jesus targeted how inconsistent they were in their practice of Sabbath law. For the sake of prescribed ceremony as a sign of the covenant, they would circumcise their male children on the eighth day after they were born, even if the eighth day happened to be a Sabbath day. It was not a life-saving procedure. It was just a symbolic ceremony to indicate cutting away of fleshly sin and being part of the covenant community. But they were outraged when Jesus healed people with debilitating disease on the Sabbath day, essentially saving their very lives. For the sake of ceremony, they made an exception to their man-made Sabbath regulations. But for the sake of life-saving healing, they refused to do so. It was pure hypocrisy. Small things have been made big, and big things have become small. I mean, the irony is rich that here they are, you know, prattling on about the law while they have a conspiracy to murder an innocent man. This is the mark of false teachers, not truth tellers. They make little things big and big things little. If you are seeking for truth, you must get honest about your own sinfulness. You must get honest about what really matters. As long as you're engaging in pretense and in religion for show, the truth will evade you. If you're being dishonest about reality, you reveal you're not really all that interested in the truth. So in what ways do we pretend that we're better than we actually are? We're all prone to this. And that leads to the question, what sins do you need to confess before God? If you're getting honest before God, like just totally honest, no masks before God. And in what areas do we make much of small things while we minimize really important things? It's, it's important to keep proportion, the proportion that's scriptural. And how can you make sure you are making much of what is most important before God? I think these are questions that probably, you know, you need some time to really chew on and think about if you are actually searching for truth. Because if you are, 
You must have submission, humility, and honesty. All three of which, by the way, are exactly who Jesus is. They're, they're all related to the appropriate response to the one who creates us and sustains us and who redeems us through Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, and we pray that we might respond to it in humble obedience because of hearts submitted to you. I pray for those still, still in this hopeless battle fighting you. For whatever reason, Lord, cripple them. Break their will. Draw them to yourself with, with the safety and the reliability and the rest that you give those who trust you. For it's in Christ's name we pray.